0: and welcome to another episode of Conversation with a Chef. I'm Jo Ritty, and I love sharing with you the conversations I get to have with talented and passionate chefs. It's the backstory, if you will, to the food they're putting up. Today, I spent a very happy 40 minutes hanging off Adam Woodfield's every word when we sat down to chat at Salted Egg in newly opened Quincy Hotel in the CBD. Then I spent another very lovely 40 minutes eating some of his food as he sent out Coffin Bay Oyster with Red Nam Jim... Smoked eel betel leaf, which I have to say was the most incredibly layered flavour experience I've ever had in a single mouthful. Then there was raw kingfish with green naam gem and the pop of finger lime. And finally, son-in-law egg, soft boiled and lightly battered with a beautifully caramelised yellow bean sauce. Just as well I walked in and out of the city on the most beautiful autumnal Melbourne day. Adam's pretty famous actually, having worked with many of the Melbourne greats, starting with an apprenticeship at Stoke House. He ran iconic Jimmy Licks in Sydney, he owned and ran his own restaurant in New York before being headhunted for Hamilton Island, and then, luckily for Melbourne, he came back here. Yet, he's the most down-to-earth, self-aware man who was so generous with his time and his stories, I just felt really lucky. (laughs) You absolutely must get away down Little Collins Street and try Salted Egg for yourself. Please say hi to Adam from me, and do eat all the wonderful food. Welcome to Salted today. Thank you. Hey, welcome. Woodfield. Hi, Adam. Hi. I'm Joe. Nice, nice to meet yeah. you. Welcome. Thank you for your time to today. It's yeah. beautiful here. Wow. We got
1: our opening launch yesterday.
0: How are you? Good.
1: After all the launches. Ah, not too bad now that it's finally all over. It's been a big um, build up for, I think we've been doing this for about six months working on yes. it all and everything like that. So yeah. yeah, it's nice to have it all done and now we can just focus on you know the, the product and getting it out there to Melbourne and, um, and uh, Australia and
0: the world. <laughs> In the world, yeah. yeah. Hopefully. One day. <laughs> one day, that's right. <laughs> So, Adam, I've, I've read a mm-hmm. read a bit about you, and there's so much that I find really fascinating. So you're originally from Melbourne,
1: um, yeah. Born and raised in Ballina, bit of Sydney, and then um, did my high school and yep. all my apprenticeship and everything in Melbourne.
0: Yeah. So okay. yeah, so yeah, kind of Sydney boy, but always. Sydney, me Melbourne. Melbourne. Boy. Yeah, yeah. Well, high school was pretty formative, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> and Bourne, was that what I saw? Yeah, Ballin High. Yeah. yeah right. So, yeah. yeah. It's very in the. I actually teach over that way now. I teach at Campbell
1: Girls as well as doing oh, this writing things. So okay, yeah, so I, I'm, yeah. Had a, I've got a, a best friend's wife, Campbell, ex girl. Oh really? Yeah. Oh, well, they're good girls. Yeah, they
0: are, they are very good girls. <laughs> um, so, and I read that you did your apprenticeship at Stoke House. So that was yeah, a pretty so, great place to be.
1: Yeah, that was oh, that was it. it's, uh, it's golden uh, days, I reckon. The Stoke House. Um, I was I uh, worked under jean Elaine, so I was downstairs. And that was probably the time when Michael Lambie was moving out and uh, Paul Rayner was coming in to upstairs, that period there. Um, And that was, you know, one of the most cherished moments, like memories I have in the kitchens that Bill Marchetti, David Thompson, but with John Elaine, he really, um, I was a second year apprentice. He um, put me in charge of all the apprentices um, at that time. And that's when, you know, the apprenticeship system was actually a really good. Um, system that was happening within uh, our industry um, and um, yeah to him I learned you know all about you know obviously par levels stock rotation everything like that managing a very section busy section which back then was the pizza section you know the big pizza oven at out the front and all that and at Stokehouse every table bloody had a pizza Um, And then from then, um, you know, worked my way up the hotline while still, you know, making sure that I had um, at that time around about eight apprentices in the downstairs kitchen, making sure they're all doing the correct things and everything like that. Plus also making sure, you know, with schooling and all that, they actually went and all that. So that was a a big main focus with um, John Elaine that, you know, the... The apprentices actually, you know, went to school and actually learned, you know, the prac side of things because, you know, you had to learn that as well, not just cook and everything like that. But the the most rewarding thing I ever got um, out of John was um, finance, how to um, actually understand how much something costs when you waste something, you know, what the effects that is to budgets and everything like that. And then how much, you know, stock to have on hand, ordering and all that kind of thing. So that's, and I, I've never been much of a maths kid. I was not very academic at school. Um, I had a love for home economics for some reason. Uh, but then, um, and that's when I started to actually fall in love with a bit of finance and numbers and everything and understanding how the restaurant industry should run and how business should be uh,
0: should run. I think, that's really, I think that's really interesting too because I think as a teacher it's, it's an important thing to remember that um, school is, should not be the best days of your life mm-hmm. <laughs> and that often um, kids haven't quite worked out what they're into but once you know what you're really into um, then you are more interested in those other aspects and so on as well It's, yeah. Yeah, it's, a, good, it's a good point I read somewhere that you, um, you loved making quiche, Lorraine with your...
1: Mum, <laughs> when you're a kid, um, that's a Sunday <laughs> night. Every Sunday night, Keshe Lorraine night with Mum, all toasted sandwiches
0: <laughs> and
1: the pastry from scratch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> she was um, she um, single single um, mother, um, and you know she was brought up in a very Italian. Um, she's not we're not um, Italian by like any means. We're all um, Australian. Um, But she grew up in a real Italian neighbourhood called Riverwood in Sydney and, you know, back when she was child, they all got together, all the neighbours and everything, and cooked and, you know, she used to tell stories how she used to have to muddle the line every Saturday for the neighbours and everything like that. Um, And so, yeah, so she, during the week, could never really cook that much because she had work, had three kids to look after, so on Sunday she really put a bit of an effort in to make sure that, you know, we all sort of did something together as a family um, that, you know, um, and I always, my sister, I have gotten older and a younger sister. The younger sister, she was always more interested in, you know, the sewing side, side of things. Uh, Mum used to always teach her about that. My older sister also had the passion for cooking, so the two of us um, used to always get in the kitchen with Mum and help her a lot on a Sunday because you got to as a kid you got to lick the bowl and you know do all that stuff kids just hang out and wait for um and mum always yeah I always thought my older sister was going to be the chef not me because uh, she had a real passion always wanted to go into the kitchen but she never ever ended up working in hospitality she did it, I think briefly but I sort of had a like a little knack for it I really loved the side of pastry work I, you know because it was always predominantly sweet time but also, um, I just felt that, you know, it was just, as a kid, you could get in there, you could knead the dough, you could do a lot of things. And my mum sort of teaching me, you know, a little bit about the basics of making a rough path or a short crust or something like that. Yeah. Thank you. And then, Thank you. Do you need sugar? No, that's fine. Thanks right.
0: very much. And, sure.
1: and then, um, yeah, so that was kind of something that just happens week in, week out kind of thing. And just quiche Lorraine was just something quite easy for mum, not too stressful, but It give give us something like two hours together, and kind of really cherish those um, Sundays, Um, because nowadays like they don't really exist that much.
0: Yeah, that's right.
1: And um, like we try and do it with our boys. We got me and my wife. We got two boys, and we try and um, you know dinner time. My wife hates it because she thinks she puts too much weight on. But dinner time is very important to me. Like I make sure like we always got a good sized dinner. You know, it can be pretty basic, like, you know, we're just doing burritos or something one night, but I always try now get my two boys involved as much as possible, to the point now they're a little bit too involved, (laughs) where I think they might follow their father's footsteps, (laughs) which I'm trying to prevent.
0: Well, that's interesting, because you obviously love what you do.
1: I do, yeah.
0: But it's a hard industry, is that what you would be worried about for them?
1: A very hard industry, I think... um, Uh, You know, I've been in this now coming about 27 years, Um, you know, I've worked in three different states, um, three different countries, um, and, sorry, four different countries, and um, there is um, certain elements where, you know, it is, it's a lot of fun. You know, I, I, I love every moment, I'm really proud of what I've done, but I also see what also happens to a lot of chefs, and um, you know, and it is not always a very healthy environment. It is getting better, I think, um, a lot better, especially in environments like this. The hotel industry um, got really good structure, um, and um, the restaurant industry too. Like I've worked for many great operators, and I've worked for you know a good amount of bad operators too. And unfortunately, the bad operators always overshine the good operators, you know, I've worked for Joe Elcham, he was one of the best owners I could have worked for, and that was Jimmy Licks, Chris Lucas, um, the Chin Chin and the Lucas Group. That was um, an experience which I was, you know, so grateful to have, um, and it wasn't, it wasn't for me, I, I couldn't deal with seven, um, uh, seven restaurants, that was a big task. Yeah. But... Learning what I learned off him, off Fab, the general manager, and the rest of the guys in the head office was, you know, a very rewarding and, um, yeah, great experience. And then we do have those little small operators that, you know, just try and cut corners a bit too much, you know, just so they can survive. Uh, I get that. But also it does fundamentally, you know, force problems onto, you know, the kitchen always. Um, That's... That's the one thing I find with hospitality kitchen always get lugged, not with problems or issues, but if you want to give something free away to the customer, it comes from the kitchen, never from the bar or anything like that. Ah, uh, that's true. If, if, we, if um, you know, if we, if we only got three people on the um, on the uh, on the books for lunch, you know, you can't have one or two chefs in. It can only be one chef, so they've got to try and cover three sections or four sections because you know payroll. We've got to meet payroll. Sure. Um, budgets and all that kind of thing so and, it, and it's and it's a real hard and um, you know when times are tough you know that's when the business does put a lot of pressure on the kitchen and it's not that's when it doesn't become very healthy for anyone mm. um, not for the owners you know because they're going to lose staff and they're going to get a bad reputation but they're just trying to keep their business afloat at the same time too and unfortunately I would say about 90 percent of Uh, restaurant owners have never worked in the kitchen Mm. probably have never done much on the floor either or in the bar sort of thing so and um, so that's that's a real problem but there can be operators out there that you know and I've had plenty of them that do jump in and do what they can they might not be great but they try and they're the ones that really sort of you know make you feel okay this is a good place to work in
0: well it's it's about hospitality isn't it and it, and it should be um, in all its senses you know behind the scenes as well as for the people coming in and I think that's, um and, and it and I think you can feel that as a as a diner as well you can get the vibe if it's a, a place that's a happy place to work and, and well run on all those kinds of things yeah. you've had experience of being an owner as well in, yeah. in New York of yeah. all places how did that happen oh,
1: that was um, so um when I was uh, Jimmy Licks, we had an offer, we, um, uh, Joe Elcham, the owner, almost had a deal go through where we had a operator in New York that wanted to bring the concept over there. The deal was made, me and my wife sold everything, we were ready to go a month before, or a bit, probably a little bit more than that. Um, the deal went south, it didn't go through, so we already had a heart set oh. on it. Um, we booked our tickets and everything like that, so we made the move. And during that time there, sorry to interrupt, would you like me? No. Not really. um, during our time there, um, I uh, was running a restaurant called Public uh, for a, a restaurant group called Avrico. and uh, that was the uh, leader. And during my time there, I met this um, Sydney gentleman. Um, mm-hmm named Luke Fryer that um, had a couple of grab-and-go sushi trains and um, he also was responsible for bringing Wagamama to Australia. So um, I met him at a, a at public one night just talking at the bar and um, both of us Australian and he said oh you know what do you do here? And I said oh chef de cuisine at this restaurant. I said oh that's great where did you work in Sydney? And I said oh I used to run a restaurant called Jimmy Licks in Sydney. like sorry? I like, oh, Jimmy Licks and Sydney He goes, are you kidding me? I go, no. I go, have you heard of it? He goes, that's one of my favourite restaurants.
0: Wow.
1: at the same reason why I worked at Public, because the owner of Public Restaurant, Jimmy Licks, was his favourite restaurant when he came and looked around at restaurants in um, Australia. So we got talking a little bit. The GFC hit. And um, so we all went a little bit quiet. Mm. And then when it started to come good, probably about 10 months afterwards, uh, Luke reached out to oh, me right. again and said, hey, want to have a think about going into business together and doing a Jimmy Licks kind of style restaurant in the West Village. And I said that was my goal when I got to when I came to New York is to have my own restaurant kind of thing. So without hesitating I said I'd love to let's do it. And so I sort of jumped in the deep ends first um opening two weeks before we opened I had my first son. Uh, then two weeks after we opened we had um trying to think of that, it was, uh, I think it was uh, Irene came through New York and yeah. just blanketed the whole city. That shut it down for almost two weeks.
0: Wow! So
1: we uh, learned quickly about the seasons in New York, um, the very trying times. So Christmas time, always, you know, everything happening in New York. Summertime, especially where we were in the West Village, everyone goes to the Hamptons. <laughs> so it was like this big roller coaster and then you have, we had Sandy, we had all these storms every year's come through. Um, and then we had our challenges of like, we were way too, um, too early with this concept. Yeah. That's what I was, I was talking to Luke one day. And because that time, that's when like simple things like checkered tablecloths came in as napkins, you know, the kitchen sort of thing, that whole American sort of farmstead. Field mason jars and all that was starting to flood, everyone was doing that kind of stuff and we were trying to be like Jimmy Licks and Long Green in the West Village, we thought definitely this is what, you know, A, there's nothing like it, there's a couple of pad thai joints in Brooklyn and Williamsburg and Queens, sure, but um, you know, we're trying to do something different, we're making our own curry paste, I'm flying beta leaves in from Hawaii because they don't grow anywhere else. Um, and to find apple and pea eggplant or chai and all that, forget about it, you know. I had to buy a lot of ingredients from the East Coast and get it flowing over.
0: And when was that? What?
1: This was, um, I would say, 2000 and... say 2010, so yeah. But it, okay, so it was 10,
0: 11 years ago, but I still I find it astounding I even found it, I find it astounding that you know coffee, you know a lot of Australian and New Zealand coffee places are so popular now oh. in America because they didn't have that no. ten years ago. But I still find that astounding that you yeah. that, that was revolutionary when it's probably the, you know, it's the way we've been dining here yeah, for
1: so many <laughs> well, for so many years and for the last wow. goodbye, the last two so the decades. The public weren't ready. Yeah, no, they weren't. They they didn't understand why why they should pay twenty over twenty dollars for a curry, you know. Didn't understand what this one leaf. You know, I can go and get something else cheaper than that. So it was really hard, and um, we we were we were open for four years. I was at the home for three, and then I um, I got headhunted to open up a restaurant in. Um, uh, Hamilton Island so during my first year there I was commuting from Hamilton Island for New York, York so sort there, of once every three months which
0: I bet is not as glamorous as it sounds <laughs> uh, the first trip was great you know,
1: <laughs> away from the family for um, two weeks was, was good but uh, as soon as you land I had all kinds of issues staffing yep. issues changed like the whole way the food was changing without me knowing um, and just the style of service really stopped um, and obviously, when I left, a lot of people, key people, left as well. Yeah. because um, you know they, they they could see there was change ahead. Um, they could see that without me there, without my you know passion for the food, my drive for you know making sure it is authentic or as close you know. Uh, to what you'd get in Thailand, that would be, you know, that would be all gone. So, sadly it happened, you know, we were serving, they were serving curry with a little, getting the cup of rice packing, putting on there with a little dome, all that was happening. Everyone getting that, just no more sharing, it was just your serve. Because Americans didn't understand the, the sharing family style. They just wanted their plate and I don't want to share with anyone else kind of thing. So, it morphed into something which I was... I was happy not to be there and have to go through it, mm. but at the same time, when I saw that change happen, that's when I sort of said, here's my, um, I'm selling out my yeah. share. Yeah. So, and that was um, that was when investors knew it was over, and it pretty much only lasted, probably about three more months after I oh, wow. did that, and then uh, that was it, so. Yeah. So, Southeast Asian food is your absolute thing. Mm.
0: How did that happen? How did you discover that that was your thing? Because I got um, brought up
1: with um, French, Italian, um, through my whole apprenticeship. Mm. Did a, stint, a little stint at Estes Estes. Trey Piardi was my first little restaurant here on Clarendon Street. Stokehouse, Il Fineo, um Marchetti for a good part of my apprenticeship. I think Stokehouse and Marchetti were the best trainings I could have ever had. Bill was one of the people that told me how to, you know, to stand to you know, to stand there and take everything that's thrown at you to make sure that you're never sorry for anything. You put your heart you wear your heart on your sleeve and you give it your best. And not to mess around with the food too much when you put it on the plate. And um, you know, the product that we used to get flowing in from the Northern Territory through uh, the Tuscan Grill was just extraordinary. Going through I did two to three Um, oyster festivals with him like just that sort of upbringing was amazing that sort of style of food and then I started to get quite bored and sick of it at one stage just doing always going to a new restaurant and having to do the pasta section I just hated risotto at that stage (laughs) Another, another another saffron risotto or something like that. I was like, this it just makes me. See. And I still can't to this day. Can't really eat risotto. Um, so I just started like losing a bit of interest. I went to my father, and um, he was a property developer here in Melbourne. And I was like, oh, having this bit of a price Dad. I think I want to leave the industry because I don't want to cook this style of food anymore. I'm not happy. I don't like my jobs that I'm going working in and all that he was like you know he tried to sell oh you can come work for me i can give you 60 grand you can sit in the lift and, or you can go on a forklift i can pay you 120 grand or you can get your crane license and you can get probably half a million a year sort of <laughs> so that's how i was like oh my god what am i doing and then my um and that's when um at the same time uh the went under and so i remember getting called in kpng's office he, you know told how much of everything i've lost and that's when I had a real moment. I was like, what do I want to do?" you? And, uh, you know, I was told to, my girlfriend is my wife now, and she was like, no, don't, you know, you've put a lot of effort into this. You really do love it. You love cooking every time when your friends come over and barbecuing and everything like that. But, you know, maybe try something else, you know. And my father used to always take us to Asian, and we always, you know, we lived in Richmond, so always Victoria Street. We used to go to, that's not Victoria Street, but Victoria Street back in the you know, mid-90s. And, um, and so I always try to go there, try to get kitchens, and I couldn't, they would never let me work in the kitchen, could never get a job in an Asian, because I just loved it, I wanted it. Then, the head chef of Marchetti's, he got a job with these two guys from Hong Kong, and um, they, we op- they opened up a restaurant called Prodigy, opposite the MCG, and that's when I had my first little taste. They wanted to do, back then, that's when Ezard was a restaurant to be, uh, and tea was doing amazing things. And so we kind of wanted to do that too, Australian meets, um, uh, East meets West, but Australian cuisine doing sort of Hong Kong style cuisine. And so got introduced to ponzu, fish sauce, palm sugar, lime leaf, lemongrass, and all that. And then that's when I was like, oh, this is good. Like we were doing, you know, stuff like, you know, fish and chips, but with ponzu, aioli, things like that kind of stuff, because rock's the MCG. But it got me excited again, you know, and um, so that's when I just thought, oh, this is, this is it. I think I've had a little bit more passion. It's something new. I was learning something again. Not that I knew everything about French and Italian cooking, but this was just foreign to me and I got really excited. And then I thought, right, after about working there, that restaurant wasn't really going anywhere. It wasn't that busy. and I said to my wife, I think let's go to Sydney. I really want to go back to sisters and my mum and plus, you know, I think, let's go somewhere warm, sick in Melbourne, you know, the weather always dreary and all that and I said, and there's a real strong Asian scene there and I really want to be part of it. There's a guy up there who's doing, you know, great things at, you know, um, Taylor's Thai and I just want to, I just want to see what it's all about. And so, we got up there, moved into Darlinghurst and I just remember, because I never never really go and, and go for ads in the papers. I always look at the Good Food Guide. Where do I want to work? What do I want to do? And then I just go around with my CV and just hand it to the places. So I just looked up every Southeast Asian restaurant, any Thai restaurant, anyone that was popular, Long Grain being the number one at that time. And then there was this one, I didn't even know what it was. It's was called Jimmy Licks. It just sounded stupid, the name. <laughs> I don't know. It's in the cross. And I was in Darlinghurst, so I wasn't far. I was like, oh, it's in the cross. And um, our best friend that we were living with, he um, worked for the. Um, he worked for um, Mushroom uh, Warner Music at that time, and um, he takes people out to all these top bars and restaurants. So I came back up to and I got the interview to meet with Will Merrick, and so. I came home and I said to my man, have you been to a place called Jimmy Licks? He goes, yeah. He goes, why? I said, oh, I've just got an interview for a CDP rob. He goes, that's the best place at the moment. I was like, oh, great. (laughs) (laughs) So I landed the um, CDP job there. And then that is when I fell in love with this style of cooking. It was like, never seen anything before. Never, Never heard of Guppy before. Never ever learned how to do lime leaf and lemongrass so fine, you know, and that's, you know, working with Will Merrick really changed everything in my life. That, I was, you know, didn't see my wife for probably about seven years. <laughs> uh, you know, she she, uh, she had the best time in Sydney, just, you know. <laughs> but, um, yeah, from there, you know, just it just that cemented right. This is what I want to do for the rest of my life. This is where I can see... It's it's nowhere at the moment. Sydney, yeah, it's been here for quite some time, but there's still a lot of growth for Thai food and Southeast Asian in um, Sydney. Now probably not so much. It's saturated. But Melbourne has nothing. Um, London, um, I've, I've been. Uh, I was working in London before. That had nothing like that before. You had David Thompson over there doing. Um, and at that time when I was at Jimmy Licks, he just got the first Michelin star. And the first Australian to get a Michelin star, and um, so that's when I knew, okay, this is going to be, you know, this style of food is going somewhere for sure. And then, sure enough, it's now. I think it, it's it's definitely one the strongest cuisine in Australia by far. When you look at, you know, our industry, there is a lot of Thai and a lot of Southeast Asian, and the most successful ones and the busiest ones. Proven to be Southeast Asian, chin chin. You know, mm. uh, what's that? Eighty million dollars a year they can turn over. You know, so yeah. and and it's the style of service which I love. Just get them in, get them out. Don't take bookings. Communal dining. Yeah. like you yeah. know, not so much now. <laughs> <laughs> but we're doing it, but, Um, but yeah, but um, it it was uh it was a game changer. Yeah, and, and that's when like from a finance point yeah. of view that. Uh, this is how a business should make money and everyone who gets rewarded the owner the workers and um the guests everyone gets rewarded in the environment and the type of um, business like this so when i i worked at jimmy Licks for about six years and i just saw that business model and that style of food and that's when i was like right, i'm taking this and i got to go to new york with it after new york i'm taking this and i'm going to hamilton island with it yeah. and then when i came back to melbourne I landed in Chin Chin and the guy who took after me at Jimmy Licks ended up opening up Chin Chin with Chris Lucas but was very short-lived and then Ben Cooper came in afterwards and now he's sort of been running it ever since. So that's when I walked into Chin Chin and I'm like, oh, hang on, these are all my, my systems from 10 years ago. <laughs> Good thing. So then I was like, oh, this is just this is cemented The most powerful restaurateur and restaurant in Australia and the, one of the most successful restaurants in Australia is because of Jimmy Lick's systems and everything like that and the way they service, the way, because Jimmy Licks never took bookings, no way. You know, they, you know, first in, Best dress, unless you knew Joe Elgin, obviously. Yeah. But, you know, and the style of service, stick drinks and all that. But that also was probably comes from Long Grain too. You know, we watched what Long Grain did and everything like that. But Long Grain was high-end up there. We wanted to be accessible for everyone. And that's where, you know, now today, here, I've taken everything I've done in all those venues, plus, you know, been in some high ends. Um, restaurants, and have been into some, you know, low-end restaurants, have been in middle um, style restaurants, and the middle accessible is where I want to be, yeah. and that's where I see us at Salted Egg.
0: Yeah, so what t- should people expect when they come to Salted Egg, because I read somewhere that, that for you, um, fusion is a four-letter word, <laughs> a PR I to, Yeah, <laughs> I, have to, I have
1: to take that back a little bit, because it is... It is something I really don't like. When you, when, when you come into a Southeast Asian restaurant, a the Southeast Asian restaurant, I, I don't really understand, I don't really like, and I don't, I don't enjoy eating fusion food when it comes. When I want to go into a Southeast Asian restaurant, like something like this, that's predominantly Thai, has influ- and it has Vietnamese, Malaysian dishes, and some sort of Chinese-influenced dishes too. Um, I like it. I like. It, I, I. I like eating something that's true. I find that I'm learning something more from the, you know, if it's true from its origin and everything like that. I get the rise out of having things like that because that's something different for me. And I understand there are there is there is definitely a market for fusion. There are people out there that love it, but that's that's not me and that's not what I want to do here. I think we've got enough of that in the city. Um, and I think what I've always tried to do is just be true to what the dish uh, where it comes from. The the technique I have slowly moved away from because financially we can't, it's too labor intensive. There's no way I can do, and uh, Jimmy we used to do all our nam gyms more and pestle because the way you pound something versus the way you blend it, whole different type of flavor. But we can't do that anymore when we've got labor restrictions and everything like that. So there's certain things that I will, okay, I'll, use the blender instead of more than a pencil because doing that for 45 minutes or doing that in two seconds is a real understanding but then I can make up for it for not putting bottled lime juice in that dressing which I can tell you now 95% of businesses probably do that. We use, we juice our limes, we juice our lemons fresh every day and we use that after service and we make sure we make enough because so we don't have so much wastage and that I'll tell you a bit more about that later. But um, we um, we make sure everything, flavour profile, is what you'd have in Thailand. I always, when I work on a new dish, I'm no expert on self-taught. I'll always lean on my, especially my Thai chefs, I'll go to them, I'll go, here's a dish sort of research I've found when I travelled in Chiang Mai or something like that. I know I'm not far from it, but what am I doing wrong? What can, you know what well, can you tell me that maybe your mum or your auntie or someone else might do that might be a little bit different? Because I don't want to just keep doing what everyone's doing. I still want to try and do... Give, we've got our dishes that definitely are crowd-pleasers and everyone knows, but I still want a handful of dishes that you might not know and you might not understand that labour profile, and then you'll go, wow, what is that? Where does that come from? So, yeah, so that's... That's the things I've changed over the past. Um, I sort of lost track of thought there, where else I was going. What, well, uh,
0: what, what you'll do, what, what can people expect when they
1: come here, I guess? Yeah, so, so I guess with that, um, here, yeah, oh sorry, back with the fusion, that's mm. where we were at. Yes. So, with the fusion, that's, that comes at breakfast. That's when we really get to be a, a lot play, more playful, so, because I've never really done breakfast before. Yeah, right. So right in the deep ends, and, um, but I love going out for breakfast. I love going to um, you know, Kettle Black, all those, uh, that group's, Darling Group, I think it is, because ca- I think their cafe scene, what they did at the pre where they got restaurant chefs, or they were restaurant chefs, come into that market and really turn it around. Yeah. And I think that has done wonders for the cafe scene. Um, and so I really took what inspiration what they do in their outlet, and that's what I sort of looked at here, Okay. I love the way they do certain things, just the style of plating up and how they only use a couple of ingredients. Yes, there's a lot of their dishes that are Instagrammable too and that's kind of like, you know, a bit about us too. Some of our breakfast dishes, we need to, you know, be kind of Instagrammable and that's where they definitely, you know, can be Instagrammable It can be a little bit of fusion. So we're doing things like... um, Steamed tofu with um, sesame and soy dressing, pickled ginger and chilli oil, so traditional dish like that. And then we've got a playful one where we sort of um, take the eggs benedict, but we do a cassava rosti, red braised pork neck, poached eggs with a Thai basil Bernays sauce. So that's where the fusion comes into yeah, right. it. Lunch and dinner is very serious until it gets to dessert because there's only so much sticky rice and mango you can do or grilled um, bananas with palm caramel and that 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 won't really sell to you know to the Westerner that much they will have it for a bit but then after a while they too will get sick of it and um you know the thais aren't famous for really being dessert chefs so they their their dessert um street snacks are amazing but it doesn't really suit this environment. Yeah. So that's where I, and I've always, because yeah, I've got the biggest sweet tooth, I love finishing the meal with dessert. I think you always got to leave on a high. I don't understand how people can't have dessert because there's nothing more than just having some chocolate, having a bit of ice cream, having something warm and sweet, just go, oh, how good's that? <laughs> and then just leave on a high, you No, know? so. Cecile, my pastry chef, she's done an amazing job. We've got this um, pandan and uber cream dome. So, this nice little dome that sits on the plate. Then, she's got all these little elements around it. So, she has um, young coconut gel, uh, ca- uh, uh, coconut dacoa, I mean, coconut um, macaroon, crushed up macaroon. And then we've got like a chili raspberry twill kind of thing with a bit of gold leaf and all that kind of stuff. So really sort of sexy, standout dishes. Um, so she's really pushing me to start to be a little bit more, have a little bit more finesse with my plate up because I've got the build Marchetti mel- mentality drilled into me. Rustic, just put it on the plate and let it be kind of thing. So yeah, but I think that's something people can, will probably see when they come to this restaurant certain dishes are starting to be a little bit more fine. If they have eaten a beetle or coca chew and know my style of food, then I think when they get here, they, they would have seen, oh, there's a little bit more mature going on the plate. You know, yeah. it's just being a little bit more refined. And certain things I've done is, is just lose the whole notion. Oh, you know, just gotta have, give the people more so they'll come back. Because giving them more food means they'll come back. They're getting um, value, but that's not the case. I'm all about, okay, if we're going to have a piece of fish or we're going to have a protein, it's got to be a really good one that's got a tangible story or something like that too. And then, you know, and then just try and put all the focus on that and then just have two to three more elements to the dish and then that's it, just leave it alone kind of thing. So that's where I'm I'm starting to push myself a little bit more, make the, i hated tweezers, I still don't use them, but at (laughs) breakfast I'm starting to use uh, flowers and all that kind of stuff. At dinner, we've got a couple of microherds here and there kind of <laughs> stuff, so it's slowly coming out and I might be, you know, a little bit past, you know, that little movement, but again, I'm sort of just, all right, let's just get a little bit more and let's try and get nicer. But I think what people will understand when they get here and they put the food in their mouth, they're like, oh my God, that's taking me back to maybe Phuket, maybe Chiang Mai, um, Lapang, you know, oh my god, I just remember those times I've had there, or oh my god, when they go upstairs to, um, to um, uh, the queue, you know, they might have even um, something simple like the um, salt and pepper squid, for example, and that's a classic one that sort of teleports me back to what, when Thai food first came into Australia. How like amazing and simple it is—just simple squid deep fried with salt and pepper mix on top, with you know fresh lemon, a lot of chopped chilli, white pepper, and salt. Something so simple—it's um, still a classic, and I'll, I'll never get rid of a dish like that. Yeah. And um,
0: and you mentioned wastage in the kitchen—is
1: yeah. that um, that's important for you to mm. be on top of that? Yeah, the big one I think. Um, you know. Being a father, really conscious about you know the way the environment's going, especially for the kids, um, the way we sort of are starting to become very wasteful in a way, um, you know, with all technology and everything like that. So here, um, i made a conscious decision. We are trying to eliminate as much gem fat containers as possible. That was my aim when we opened up, not to have it. Unfortunately, they always slowly creep into the kitchen. So environmentally, trying to just be a little bit more sound with like how much plastic we used. We, I try and um, uh, did it with the Lucas Group. We got rid of all facts and we just put um, still hard plastic Canberra containers in all kitchens that um, Reduced, you know, purchases went right down, which was great. They saved a lot of money, but also landfill and all that's been a real good thing. And when it comes to the kitchen sort of thing, a lot of guys don't really get taught a lot about the finance sort of side of things, but here I try and teach the guys uh, when we do, when certain sections do butchering. So, for example, you can have a, a commie chef to a CDP on larder, they'll have to butcher down the whole kingfish. Just to do our um, sort of king, our raw kingfish dish as a starter. When they do all that, they have to like figure out the wastage, how much wastage goes in the bin, how many portions they got, and then they've got to do all the finance um, also. So they've got to go back to the invoice that day that we got it. How much did we came? How much came in uh, dollar wise? And they've got to do all the maths. How much they ended up? How much they wasted? They have to record it each time. Then at the end of the month, we go through. We 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 don't want to see it as a competition. But we're just trying to make everyone aware of of how much wastage is going on. Plus, um, you know, is there other ways that, you know, not to throw everything in the bin? When it comes, you know, Josh Nile up at um, St Peter's doing amazing things. And I think a lot of, you know, chefs nowadays are starting to see that. And that's where at Jimmy Licks I got um, shown uh, by my sous chef at the time what to do with... um, the ribs of uh, salmon and trout, where you just steam them, then you batter them, or you put them in the flour and you defry them, chilli salt, and you eat them. And that's a, you know, you're just eating bones, and it's so delicious. And that's where, you know, now you see the collars from kingfish, they're being thrown away, and now the last five, ten years, because of the Japanese influence, people are starting to use that. So, really try and push these guys to sort of think a bit more, not to throw away, not to go crazy and start serving spinal cords and everything like that. (laughs) But also, be mindful, you know, hone in on your skill, make sure your knife skill and all that's really good. And then also just sort of start thinking, what's going in the bid? Is there something else we can do with that? Instead of just get throwing it straight away. Um, so that way we can a, make some more money, which, you know, helps everyone. But at the end of the day, also, you know, pushes us a little bit more to do some investigating, some more research and all that. It just sort of help... You know the problem with reducing landfills and all that kind of stuff because again, you know, I think only two weeks. I was listening to an economist in um, America, Scott Galloway, talk about landfills, how that's becoming a major issue, especially with restaurants. How you know how much wastage is going on, yeah. Know? And it's and it is a massive problem in the industry. Yeah.
0: Um, without wanting to end on a sad note, uh-huh. <laughs> but because you're doing great things for yeah. that but thank you so much. That's, that's alright. Been... I feel like we've just covered so much. Yeah, it's <laughs> amazing. No, Thank you, Adam. That's all right. Pleasure, jo. pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Conversation with a Chef with Adam Woodfield at Salted Egg and Quincy Hotel. If you want to experience all the greatness for yourself, which of course you do, you can find Adam at 509 Flinders Lane in the city. As for me, I'm also on Instagram at Conversation with a Chef. And if you want to read the chat, you can head to www.conversationwithachef.com. I'd absolutely love it if you told a friend about my chats. And of course, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts or click follow on Spotify so I know you're there. Once again, thank you. Have a great day, see you next time.